Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. Today, we're bringing back a couple of our favorite guests and our close friends, MacArthur Krishna and Bethany Brady Spaulding. MacArthur and Bethany have just released a new book titled, In the Image of Our Heavenly Parents, A Couple's Guide to Creating a More Divine Marriage. Bethany and MacArthur have done super interesting and important work with this book. It uses the model of divine partnership based on the doctrine of heavenly parents to inspire couples to create powerful and fulfilling partnerships in their own marriages. They do so in each chapter with sections that they call prophetic counsel, mining the rich resources that we have from church leaders that point to true equality and partnership in marriage, as well as professional expertise, allowing marriage and family therapists to help couples find practical ways to make that ideal a reality. The book also functions like a workbook with lots of practices that help us understand our own values and goals for our relationships. We really think that it's something lots of Latter-day Saint couples would enjoy going through together. It really is something special that they've put together, and we're grateful that they sat down to talk with us about it. And just to introduce you again briefly to MacArthur and Bethany, MacArthur has a master's degree in communication from BYU and also co-owned Free Range, which is an award-winning marketing business focused on telling social justice stories. In 2011, she moved to India and started writing books, which she's been doing ever since. Bethany has a Master of Public Health from the University of London and has worked for both large international organizations and small local nonprofits to advance children's health and wellness in South Africa, India, and the U.S. She calls Richmond, Virginia home, where she runs school gardens, writes books, and raises three girls. This new book, In the Image of Our Heavenly Parents, was published as an ebook and can be purchased at dstreetpress.com. And with that, we'll jump over into the conversation. We hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Bethany and MacArthur, we're so excited to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us again. We're happy to have you. Happy to be here always. I will tell you, I finished your book this morning and I was so excited about it. I was making mental lists of all of the people who I need to give this book to, not because I think there's anything wrong with their marriages, but because it was so good. I just want, I want everyone to read it so we can talk about it. It was, it it was, it's transformative. It really is. And and I love the way that um, the whole book is structured because it, it's made to help you take in the wisdom and then actually apply it. Every single chapter is, here's a bunch of, of, of really interesting points, and here's how you can actually do something about it today. Um, I love to create tools that can help us all grow from where we are to where we aspire to be and live up to our ideals. And um, it was interesting. My husband's a convert to the church, and when he encountered the gospel, he was really deeply touched by the, the emphasis we place on marriage and family and the, the, the joy and the, um, just the real focus that we put on it, um, it really touched him and it really drew him to the faith. Even before he met me, he had encountered that many times. Um, but then he also, as we started our marriage, he, then he started realizing that we have these high ideals and emphasis placed on it, but we don't have necessarily any more tools than other people to achieve those ideals. So there's oftentimes this gap, the separation between our ideals and our abilities, um, that leads a lot of people frustrated or disappointed or feeling lacking. And, and so, um, you know, creating tools that can help us is, is really important to us. And so that's what this guidebook is. Um, what we did is we partnered with four LDS therapists, Jennifer finlayson Fife, Julie Hanks, Jeff and Jody Stewart, and Ty Mansfield. And together, we came up with 12 principles for creating a more divine marriage. And um, we started that process with some of Dr. Hanks' dissertation research on partnership marriages. Um, and then we worked together to tweak them and refine them and came up with these 12 um, and that with each principle, um, we have three parts of it. We give prophetic counsel, you know, what have church leaders, inspired church leaders shared on this, on this topic. Then we have professional expertise, you know, what are the therapist insights as they are experts in this field? What can they teach us? And then what are the practices for partnership? How can we take these teachings and then really dig in and dive in and do the work and, and make them become who we are? Um, and can I just read you just briefly these 12 sure. principles? Because I think yeah. they're so, Powerful. Um, and um, so one, we co-create a mutually empowering vision for our partnership. Two, we celebrate the strengths in each partner. Three, we invest in growth, our own personal growth, 
the growth of our partner, and our growth as a couple. Four, we share spiritual stewardship of our family. Five, we collaborate on leadership and decision-making. Six, we nurture and provide together. Seven, we honor all contributions as equally valuable. Eight, we access and utilize family resources equitably. Nine, we address problems and resolve conflicts respectfully. Ten, we prioritize fun and friendship in our partnership. Eleven, we create mutual physical pleasure and nurturance. And finally, twelve, we find joy in the divine pattern of our heavenly parents. Um, and so those, those are these 12 steps that we've invited couples to focus on one a month and, um, and think of this as this year-long journey, which is actually, of course, a lifelong journey of, of cultivating these principles in our lives and in our marriages so that we can more fully reflect the divine pattern of our heavenly parents. Love that. Bethy and I joke around all the time that we're done. We're retiring, right? Like, like we've done and dusted. And then what usually happens is one of us, and it, we can't blame the other because it like rotates among who does this, but one of us begins to have this inkling and we begin to look around and we begin to see that there's this confluence of things happening and that energy starts to whip you into a whirlwind. And once one or the other of us is whipped into a whirlwind of like, this is a need, we need to do this. Then we call the other one, like, we're not retiring, like, like come, come out of retirement. Here we go again. Right. And so in this particular instance, we had this confluence of all these ideas. Um, a couple of years ago, Bethy and I published a series of kids books, the girls and boys guides to heavenly mother. And those were super joyful to embrace the doctrine from the gospel topics essay and to really celebrate that we have this truth. But we as LDS folk are doers and not just hearers of the word, um, as Sister Huerto reminded us, right? And so we started thinking about how do we do this? What is the application of this doctrine, right? So truth blesses lives if you apply it. So how do we apply this? And so we're going around all these firesides. We give dozens of firesides every year on the doctrine of Heavenly Mother, um, according to the Gospel Topics essay. And in speaking about this, people regularly say, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? And how do we apply this? And we are not stewards for church structure, right? So our application is not towards church structure. We're not the prophet. And right next to that, we also know that the church is scaffolding, right? And so what we want to spend our time and energy and, and oomph on, if we're coming out of retirement, right? What we want to spend our oomph on are things that are eternal. And so things that are eternal are family, God, relationships, right? Like we know what we care to the next life is relationships. And so for us, it became this question of, even in our own marriages, right? Like if what is the most important thing to us is God and our families and our relationships, then how do we invest in those? And then I was studying the gospel topics essay on mother in heaven again. And the final quote is by elder Oaks. And he says, our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. And I thought, Ooh, what does, what does that mean to be like them? right? Like what is, what is even entailed in that? And it occurred to me that even if we become perfected in Christ, right? If we become the most best version of ourselves, all the dross has been, you know, burned off and we are whole. We're not perfected beings just floating around in the ether independently. Like I'm so perfect, right? Like literally we have to be not just and I use perfect as whole, not perfect, like, you know, but as we're becoming God-like beings, like that God-likeness has to translate to how we interact with one another. So C.S. Lewis says it's really easy to be a Christian until you're spending time with other Christians, right? <laughs> and right, so right. like he has this whole essay about like the candle makers over there sniffing his nose in a funny way. And this guy cheated me last week. And so like, we realize that in becoming perfected beings in Christ, then we have to take that, those lessons we've learned and figure out how to interact with one another, right? And that this idea that we have families and marriages to be the vehicle to create this, this like scrubbing, refining mm -hmm. process, right? You know, it's not just individual growth, but like partnership and symbiotic growth. And that's when it really becomes a thing, right? 
So we started to look around and be like, okay, these are all this confluence of all these ideas. And once the energy is like whipping into this whirlwind, you know, we call each other and we're like, is there like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this idea? And the first process is like, well, let's, let's dig in. Let's do some research. Let's actually figure out what do we know about our heavenly parents? And does that, is there enough meat there to really create something that's helpful? And the timing so of it was, was there enough? Yeah. There, there was great. And, you know, in, and 2022, you know, is wrapping up as a surprisingly great year to talk about heavenly parents and equal partnerships. You know, um, in just last October general conference, Elder Soares, you know, he set the standard straight. He made it absolutely clear um, when he taught that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims the f- principle of full partnership between woman and man, both in mortal life and in the eternities. You know, and that that was powerful. That was unequivocal. That you know, full partnership, equal partnership, now here on Earth and in the eternities, is um, that's our doctrine. Um, in April General Conference earlier, Elder Renlund's talk, when he invited, counseled us, pointed us towards the Gospel Topics essay on Mother in Heaven, um, which contains these, you know, powerful revolutionary principles about partnership. Um, in there, it talks about prophets have taught that our heavenly parents work together for the salvation of the human family. Um, it has the quote from Susie Young Gates of the divine, divine mother is side by side with the divine father. Um, it, and it introduces us to this beautiful, this beautiful concept of a divine pattern set by our heavenly parents of equal partnership. And so as, as we dug in, we're like, wow, there, there is a lot just this year. And then of course, before then, um, of this model that we want to hold up and shine to the world that our heavenly parents model divine partnership. And that is what divine marriage is. It's full and equal partnership. Awesome. And let me ask you too, just as we frame this conversation, um, and I know you've thought a lot about this, there is potential, you know, obviously for people who don't quite fit the mold of what you guys refer to as the divine pattern for there to be some pain here, whether someone is single, you know, by choice or not, or part of the LGBTQ community and doesn't seem to, you know, fit this sort of male and female uh, pattern. Um, yeah. so could you, could you talk us through how you've thought about that as you created this, this guide? So thank you for bringing that up because that's actually something that almost, um, derailed the entire project. So Bethy and I do all this research, do all this digging in, we see the need for this. And then it just like hit my heart. And I thought, I do not want to create something that creates more pain. Right. So I didn't get married till I was 37. And so um, I'm well aware of what it feels like to be a single member of this church, right? And um, I have people who I love near and dear to me who are part of the LGBT community. And so I see their pain in trying to be a member of this church. And so it literally like like crushed. And so I, call, I called Bethany and said, maybe we shouldn't do this. Like, I'm I'm not sure we should do this. And then I honestly feel like we were inspired um, because I called Tom Christofferson, right? <laughs> and I said, Tom, talk to me about this. Like I, I like he lives with such grace, right? And uh, and such love for Christ and for people. And so I said, like, how do we do this? Like I don't want to. I don't want to create pain. And he and I talked back and forth, and he actually gave me a new framework for understanding it that was super helpful. Um, and Tom said to me that not every book is for every person, right? One. And so this is a book that we say, and they've been given our introduction, like this is a book for people in a heterosexual marriage or those who aspire to be, right? And so like, if that is the aim we're going for, we're not saying that these other people don't matter. We're saying the people who are working on these things, like my marriage, like, these are the people we always write books for ourselves, right? Like we wrote the girls who choose God books for our daughters. right? Like, yeah. And so we're writing this for this segment of the population. Right. I would also say that as a follow-up to that, I called um, the LGBTQ person who's so near and dear to me. And I said to her, like, do I do this again? Like, I don't want to cause pain. And she started laughing at me and she said, you know what? We, she's married to a woman and she said, of all the things that my wife and I wrestle with, this is not one of them, right? Because we are having to forge new structures that haven't really existed before. Not that people haven't been in relationships before, but there's a very short history of marriage 
And you're saying she's people. saying we're not these issues that you are addressing specifically of like traditional gender roles and inequality are not something that they're wrestling with. Inter- that's interesting. Exactly. Okay. So not okay. that there hasn't been LGBTQ forevermore, right? But like this concept of like an LGBTQ marriage is very recent, right? And so she said, we don't have patterns that we're trying to sort out. We're having wow. to be really intentional about building our own patterns. Wow. And on top of that, the pattern of equality between men and women is not just for marriage, right? This is the scripture in Nephi that says, God is no respecter of persons, black and white, male and female, bond and free, Jew and Gentile, right? And so this concept that we should treat one another as equals, like equality is the divine principle. Now, whether or not you apply that principle in a marriage or in a work situation or in your friendships or in like, like interracial relationships, like, like whatever you're doing there, equality is the principle. Now we happen to take that model of equality being divine and work with therapists to apply it to a heterosexual marriage. But that's because there's a need for that vein in a way that there's not, um, according to people I talked to, not an issue in the relationships they're setting up. That's, that's a really interesting point. Thank you. I, I, before you move on from this though, I would still love for you to address specifically the entire doctrine of heavenly mother, because this is a, this is actually where I've heard a little bit of concern that is the idea that we're bringing heavenly mother back into the conversation. Is that, is, is that all by itself? Does it have potential to exclude people who are already marginalized? And, and I've heard you speak about this before. And I I just feel like that's something that we need to address because I know that people feel they like we have tender feelings around LGBTQ issues. And and the last thing that we would want to do is it, like you said, is like add to that pain. Yeah. So just, can you just address that? Yeah. Sure. Bethany, I, go think, ahead. Um, I love that faith matters um, embraces an expansive view of the gospel. And I think that's what we're trying to do is have a more expansive view of God. And I think to have God just be one gender, it's exclusionary. Like it's, it's, um, and that's exclusionary. introducing heavenly mother expands our vision of God and what that exactly looks like. You know, we don't think to claim to know, but but it's expansive and it hopefully is more inclusive so that people can, more people can see themselves in the divine. Um, that, that is my hope is that, that heavenly mother only opens up the possibility and potential for people to feel connected and included and reflected in who we see as God. That's, that makes so much sense. That's beautiful. Yeah. Like it's, it's making the spectrum bigger and longer and, and that can be, that can only be a good thing. Right. Yeah. You've done so much work in dispelling these myths that we have about heavenly mother, that there's something too sacred or that this, this feels taboo to people. And, and I love so much the way you have opened up how joyful and like celebratory this doctrine should feel. But for, for someone who's still feeling like, Oh, it's hard to get over that feeling. If you were raised to believe that there's something too sacred about heavenly mother to talk about openly, can you just talk to those people specifically? And, and why is it really not enough to just believe in a, in a, a heavenly father who is infinitely loving? I, cause I, I can imagine that someone could say, I just don't know if I need this because I believe in, in a father figure who is, who is infinitely good and perfect and loving. And so there's nothing missing. So can I just, um, I want to address that question. Um, I want to address both of those things, but first I want to say that uh, MacArthur and I are both 48. And um, we grew up in households where we were taught this model that the man, the husband, the father was the head of the household. That was what was taught. And um, both of our fathers were good men and did their best to be good dads, good fathers. But um, that model never felt right to me. You know, they just, it felt instinctively like le- fallen and less than. Um, I could just feel the lacking in it, even though my dad was a good man. Um, but when MacArthur and I were both coming of age, when we were 21, it was 1995, and the proclamation, the proclamation on the family was introduced. And I know that's a complex document for many reasons, but it introduced this gem, this beautiful gem of the restoration of equal partnership, that men and women work together as equal partnerships. And, you know, to us, just, you know, moving into adulthood, like that just, again, expanded this whole idea of that it's not just men that are important and are at the head, but that we believe in partnership in marriages and in the eternities, in our concept of God, you know, and um, that was actually just like right when I was leaving on my mission, the month before I was leaving on my mission. And I felt like this was the most joyous thing to share with the world that, um, you know, this fallen model of headship of, of, of the head of household that, that not just as Latter-day Saints, but as Christians of people 
you know, throughout can time. I one quote on this, Bethany, and then you can yeah, circle please. back around. So in digging through research about like structure of marriage and how this came to be, here's a quote, St. Augustine from the 300s, okay? Women does not possess the image of God in herself, but only when taken together with the male who is her head, so that the whole substance is one image. But when she is assigned the role of helpmeet, a function that pertains to her alone, she's not the image of God. <laughs> but as far as the man is concerned, he is by himself alone the image of God. Just as wow. full and completely as when he and the women are joined together as one. So the problem with saying that we only need a heavenly father is that perpetuates St. Augustine's rather limited worldview. Right. Wow. We, as Latter-day Saints, if we believe in families, if we believe in partnership, then we need the mother along with the father. Like we need them both to help us reach our highest potential and to and to thrive. Yeah. One of the one of the tricky words uh, that is sort of all around us when we're talking about this is the word preside, right? And it's like when I was growing up, that was that was very much you know something that I was hearing at least you know in local congregations, like the the man presides in the home, and obviously that's the root of the word president. Do we have? Do we have evidence? Do we have a prophetic counsel that says that this is not a president and vice president type of type of situation? Tons, actually. And so we have that exact phrase. So the proclamation on the family talks about being co-equals. There are prophets and apostles who quote, who say lots of things about we, we, there are no such thing. I think it was, I'm going to misquote. No, I think it's Ballard who says there's no such thing as president and vice president. Oops. Right. Oaks. Oaks says this, right? Oaks says there's no such thing as a president and vice president, that that model of together and equality is the model. And then obviously Elder Soros has talked just in the most recent general conference in October, just laid that down, right? Like these are how a couple should interact together. And frankly, it takes some relearning for all of us. I mean, this is, and we want to be really, really clear here. This is not, um, men are at fault for this structure or that this is uh, a call to men. This is literally a call to all of us to handle ourselves better. And we can get more into that, but we just want to be really clear that this yeah. is, this is a call to all of us to step up to our divine potential. Right. And that's, that's we're given the restoration gives us this theology of partnership and of co-presidents and of equality. And, um, but our, our, is that our belief? Is that our doctrine? Is that our theology? Absolutely, yes. Do we live it out yet? No. no are we striving to? Absolutely. And to me, the, the journey, that long journey of living up to those ideals is exhilarating, right? And that's, what we, that's why we wrote this guidebook, is to be part of that journey of, of going from um, you know, where we are to what we believe. And you know, um, I was just thinking, I tell my girls all this all the time that um, I, I make the equation of like, um, like the United States of America and our founding documents. So we write that all men and women are created equal, right? But um, do we, do we practice that yet? No. Have we ever? No. But is that what we're journeying towards? Absolutely. And right, you know, and I've mentioned this before, I live in Richmond, Virginia, and um, you know, the epicenter of racism and the capital of the Confederacy. And just yesterday, we took down the last statue of a Confederate soldier who fought to defend slavery just yesterday, you know, and it's it's exciting like to see we're we're progressing towards our ideals and we are far from there but i want to be a process, part of the process of of striving and reaching towards what we know is true and right and godly and whether here in our in our country as a citizen or whether in the church as a as a member like we are we are striving for these ideals that we know that are true and we're not there and we all are working with some false models but we have this ideal and this divine pattern that we are set out to achieve. Yeah. I love that. It just feels like such an abundant mindset. I love Jody Moore. I was always talking about if you're coming from a place of abundance or scarcity, and this feels like a great context to play around with that. And you can, you can look at this with the scarcity mentality and imagine that we're just never living up to this potential. And it's, it's like frustrating and it really drags you down and it feels hopeless. And I, and I love like pausing for a minute and saying, no, 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 like there's so much abundance here. Like the doctrine is there and we have all of the, all of these aspirations and that's such good energy. Like there, there's something to build upon that is, is getting momentum and like changes, you know, rumbling forward. And we're part of that. And like that, that is abundant and exciting. And, and, and what's I just, lovely I love how you, that feels. What's lovely is when you actually see it happen. So I was raised with my parents literally sitting down and specifically saying, 
Your father is the president of the family. I'm the pre- vice president. You guys are the board of directors, right? And um, and that was very progressive to let kids even have an opinion, right? <laughs> but like, what's interesting is then I saw my parents when the proclamation on the family came out that they, they because they are God-loving, want to listen to the prophet people, sat down and said, oh, we need to restructure this. Mm-hmm. And it's taken like, and you can say that like, okay, we're now co-equals. There's no, there's no president, vice president here, but then you have all your defaults, right. That you just kind of slide into. And so it takes some intentional recrafting, right. Yeah. And so that's why we actually did these exercises in the book. Cause you can just learn it and like conceptually say, oh yeah, that makes sense. But you actually need learnings. You need practice. Yeah. You need to like groove new muscle memory in order to change to this new pattern. Right. Yeah. And we're all 100% guilty of, um, of living the old pattern of living the, the false model, right? Like we all do it. Yeah. Right. And can, can I, I ask, oh, we no, started ahead, the Aubrey, same please. way even, I just wanted to say one thing. This isn't even a question. I just had to tell you, like, so something that was really important to me in this book was that you talk about how this doesn't mean that you're trying to scramble traditional roles. Like if you do feel like your skills and, and your life situation means that it it is just working for your family, for the, for the woman to be home with the kids. Like, you're not saying that that is problematic. The problem yeah. is, is when there's one person making those decisions, like making the decisions about who's going to stay home and who's going to go to work. And that was really empowering to me because I have honestly, I've always felt like a twinge, you know, like, oh, sorry, this is getting personal. <laughs> I, I, was, I had always felt almost guilt. Like I I'm not, I'm not really in this conversation because I did choose to stay home. And so I really appreciated that you framed this in a way that felt very true to me. The, the important part was that we, we chose that together and, and that's why it was still okay for us. Like it was, it was, a, it really did feel like a decision based in partnership. And so I don't think that I had ever totally understood that until I read the book. And that really was empowering. And, and that actually like, it, it was really healing. So I appreciated that so much. I'm so, so glad. And, and Aubrey, I feel like our hope is that as we present the model of heavenly parents, that of course, parenthood, you know, anytime we celebrate heavenly mother, that is like to celebrate motherhood, yes. right? Like in all of its beauty and power of potential and goodness, right? And um, and, and yeah. so I'm so glad that you feel like that is your, your gifts that you use as you nurture and grow and raise and cultivate and inspire children. Um, and you are also modeling partnership in this great endeavor with Tim, with faith matters podcast. You know, I actually think you two are such an extraordinary example of equal partnership that you've, you've used your gifts to bring all these ideas to life in our faith community. And it's Thank beautiful. You. So I think Thank you reflect that at home. You reflect that um, in Faith Matters and in the world. And it's been a gift to all of us, to your children and to all of us. I really appreciate that. Thank you. There's a study that keeps circulating around <clears throat> that talks about that Utah ranks so low in inequality between men and women. And one of the ways they measure that is by like how many women are in politics or how many women are in business. That's not an accurate measurement of equality at all. The accurate measure of equality are men and women able to do what they want to do, right? And so if a woman wants to be a full-time stay-at-home mom, that puts her just as equal as the woman who wants to go do, be in politics, be in business, you know, do whatever. So it's about the choice, right? It's a quality of choice. And I think that's really important for us to to be clear on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it could be indicative of a problem, but not necessarily. 100%. Yeah. And I think the other part of that is that, so I think it's two parts. I think it's choice. And then I think it's about growth, right? We know we're here on this earth life to grow. And a friend of mine talked to me recently and she said, I have nine children. My mother muscles are super strong, right? Like I can rock this. She really feels that her skills like you are made to, to be a full-time mom and stay at home. And she really feels honor in this and feels that she's um, channeling deity. So it's a beautiful, rich thing. But she said, I also realized the other day that my God-given talents, other God-given talents, such as music, art, theater, singing, had not had any investment in 20 years. So it's the old adage about what do you do with your talents? Have you put your talents and you bury them? They atrophy, right? And so how do we let women have this choice you know, to say, this is what I want to do. 
and at the same time, not atrophy their other talents, right? So how do you structure your time? How do you structure family resources? How do you structure an investment so that both couples are growing? Can I ask you to just sort of as a precursor, and I want to get into like the the practices because some of those are so, I mean, they're useful, but also just fun. Um, but before we get into some of that, it does seem like it's, it's hard. I, I would imagine that for a person of faith for whom God is just a male, it would be difficult to like sort of buy into the whole uh, into the whole thing and be really inspired to say, okay, we're co-equals and we're going to, and we're going to um, really live our life that way. So could you give us maybe just quickly some really practical tips for bringing heavenly mother into our paradigm of God? So God is no longer, you know, just a, he in the way, in the way that we talk about God, because I think that once we've done that, it leads very naturally into wanting to follow that pattern. That's so true. Yeah. So I would say one of my first kind of practical tips is to get educated. So Elder Renlin in General Conference invited us to study the Gospel Topics essay. And um, some people talk about how short it is, but again, that's a scarcity mindset. Um, I actually think it carries a heavy-duty punch, right? If you actually look at that and really internalize what you're learning about it, there's about 13 to 14 solid doctrinal points that, that that essay makes that are revolutionary. It literally changes how we see and think and feel in this world. And so, for instance, when you get into the gospel topics essay, it says, and so this is what Elder Renlin is tra- framed as like, this is our doctrine, right? So this is not stuff we have to quibble with. This is our doctrine. So the doctrine says on there that our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother created the, designed the plan of salvation together. That's not something I had considered before, right? Before reading that essay. And so all of a sudden, I had this new understanding about Heavenly Mother's role, right? That she was 100% in the plan for her children's lives, which frankly made a lot of sense to me. Like, I think there's some stereotypes in here, but I think there's a fair amount of women (laughs) doing the serious planning for their children's lives, right? And so like understatement. And so I think that like, once we have this model and we understand that we have information about who Heavenly Mother is and what her role is, then it's very easy to roll that into our conversation. And when we roll it in, we know we're being doctrinally accurate. So if we say, for instance, if you stand and bear your testimony and you say, I know my heavenly parents love me. That's not wild and crazy information, right? And so if someone wants to start practicing how to roll Heavenly Mother in, I would get educated about who she is and then apply those things as we're speaking. We talk about having a mother tongue, right? Getting comfortable speaking with a mother tongue, as Bethany and um, Carolyn's talked about at the Restore Conference. And so mother tongue is knowing who Heavenly Mother is and using that. And so I admit in the beginning, when I first started to practice having a mother tongue, I'd kind of whispered a little bit like, Heavenly Mother loves us, right? And um, and then all of a sudden I had this realization. When we hold up light, when we offer light, when we offer truth, that blesses people's lives. So we know this is true. And so the more we speak it, doctrinally accurate, the more we speak it, the more we're blessing people. We're blessing ourselves and we're blessing others. And as soon as I framed it as like, instead of framing it as like, oh, I'm being so taboo, I'm talking about something. As soon as you frame it as I am sharing truth that blesses lives, then all of a sudden my hesitation just evaporated. Now I still had habits I had to get over and kind of phrases of speech that just slide out, but the but the blessing of it became real, Right. And I think also, as you talk to people about this, so in all the dozens of firesides within people, people come up to us and talk about how knowing their mother loves them has blessed their life. So this has become very real for me, not just for me personally, but as I've seen people experience that. And so withholding that truth does not bless people's lives, right? Why Why? Why would we do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Bethany, any others that you wanted to add? Oh, I would say, but you, I'm just curious. Do you think a lot of people just resist this thinking of God as heavenly parents, even, even though that's, that's presented to us as doctrine. I, I, I just, I just, I don't want, I, I just think like, let's just think of God as the ultimate couple of the universe. Yeah. Like, I, that, that's, that's who God is. I don't know if it's, if, if it's conscious resistance, but I, I definitely very, especially when it comes to pronouns, God, God and he, 
go to, I mean, that's the only way that I, that I hear it in most of my like sort of standard church settings. But um, maybe it's just, it's what you said, MacArthur, like maybe it's just a habit. It's just, it's just the, com- it's what rolls off the tongue. And yeah. and when it's you really default, try to disrupt it, it changes. Yep. It's yeah. a default. And, and so we work to be deliberate and how we just yeah. talk about God. And like I mentioned, like uh, MacArthur said, speaking at, at Faith Matters Restore Conference, you know, when we use only he to describe God, you know, women feel invisible. Our eternal destiny is not captured in that notion of God, right? But when we choose language that reflects our restored gospel knowledge that God is heavenly father and heavenly mother to united and sealed as a couple, you know, then we can see, we can see ourselves in God, right? And we feel invincible. And um, so it, it is a, it is a shift and it's a slow shift, but, um, but I, I, I do feel like that's, you know, heavenly parents are our, our ultimate model of godhood. Yeah. Yeah. And reframing this to like being in line with restoration truth instead of being some sort of Mm, agenda laden term, right? Yes. This is this is not agenda laden. This is literally our doctrine. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so we're coming in line with light and knowledge and truth. Right. And so that's that's the conceptual shift. Yeah. I think for me, the very, the very most the the easiest language tweak that's sort of like. I mean, there are lots of habits that I think we could all, you know, potentially work on changing. But like the very first step, I think that's that's easy because it doesn't feel threatening in any way is whenever you find yourself wanting to say Heavenly Father, you can say Heavenly Parents. And it doesn't even it doesn't even sound edgy in the most uh, yeah. traditional of circumstances. So you know? President Nelson in his Come Follow Me talk said, Jesus Christ invites us to the covenant path that leads us back to our Heavenly Parents. Yeah. There you go. That is the whole point of earth life. Yeah. Right. Heavenly parents, our highest yeah. aspiration is to be like them. Right. As elder Oak said. And so like, this is an embrace of our doctrine. This is an embrace of restoration, restoration truth. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I'd love to talk about just one, one of the, I mean, we can talk about a couple of the principles in the book, but one thing that felt like it came up in multiple chapters that I loved so much. And it just, it really, really resonated with me. And I felt like it's something that I had to, that I learned slowly and, and, it's been such a blessing. And I love that it, it kept coming up from every different, from every contributor, they brought this up. And it's this idea that you need to bring a developed soul to the partnership and that, you know, being accommodating or selfless, I think is how I thought of that as a value. Like I I thought of it as being the opposite of selfish that, you know, you're going to give and give and give and always accommodate. And that that would somehow be fruitful for a marriage. And I loved that everyone talked about how important it is to have an identity. And, and I love that phrase, a developed soul, because it, it actually contributes to the relationship for it and contribute. And it's beneficial for yourself, but also for your partner. And so I, and I feel like this is something that I have, I have really learned from both of you. Like you, you, you totally embody this principle. And I, I, it's been such a blessing to just know you over the last few years and see how much joy that brings your family. And not not being a martyr, like being a whole, whole person with passions and wants and needs. And I just, I really respect that and have had to be so intentional about trying to develop that. So I, I would love for you both to just talk about why that matters. I think when we talk about Godhead, if we have Heavenly Father as this robust, full, developed being, and then you have this like, that's that's my like nonverbal cue for you, like, like, a shriveled, non-developed, non-growth, like heavenly mother. That's not like, think about that for a second. Like that, that wouldn't even work. Right. We talk about that all the time about being equally yoked. Right. So if we're having a God and a God become God symbiotically together, right. You have these full developed beings, which means this earth life is practiced to become that full developed being. If we are going to literally become gods, the definition of God is a whole being, right? And so that applies obviously to both men and women, right? And you know, it's, it's been interesting that um, I've lived in a lot of cities where a lot of LDS couples, young LDS couples move for graduate school. You know, we lived in Washington, DC, a lot of couples come for law school, lived in Chicago, a lot of couples come for business school. I now live in Richmond where a lot of couples come for medical and for dental school. And oftentimes that is for the husband to do graduate work. And um, which is fantastic, right? Um, but often when I meet these young couples and I'm chatting with them and ask um, the wife, you know, what what are you are passionate about or what do you do? And I often get these looks of, 
I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm not quite I'm too tired clear. to think about that. Uh, yeah. I'm too <laughs> overwhelmed. I'm doing this. And, and um, to me, that's troubling. It, it's not at all troubling if they say, I'm supporting my partner right now in this season of life. And we're investing in his growth because that's important for our family. That's beautiful. If we can articulate that, if we can be clear about, I am loving having children. I'm loving, you know, whatever stage you're at, but the, the uncertainty and the unclearness and the confusion, um, when we orient growth, um, we, when we orient our investments around just one partner's growth, I think that causes a lot of, um, lack of confidence, a lot of, and eventually like resentment and frustration and disappointment and feeling less than. And so, um, but just recently I, uh, walked, saw a new couple in our chapel and I went up and introduced myself and, uh, they said that he was there for nursing school and she was there for her master's of social work, you know, and it was so fabulous. And again, it's not about the degrees. The degrees aren't what matter. It's about both couples being able to say, this is what I'm focusing on growing right now. This is what I'm pursuing. This is, um, as an individual, as, as a couple, um, together, um, this is, we're both growing. We're both investing our time and our resources and our energies in developing our full selves. And let me circle back around to the story that I told about the woman with the nine children, right? Where she says these other God-given talents had atrophied. So when she realized this, after kind of this conversation and talking about Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Mother is like for women, it talks about in the Gospel Topics essay that she's our eternal prototype, right? Women are to become like this. And so that means we have to become whole beings. And so she said that she declared that Thursday night was her sole investment night. And she locks the door at four o'clock once all the kids are home from school, you know, and from there on out, the big kids take care of the little kids and the husband handles dinner and handles bedtime and handles whatever. And she gets one night a week that she paints. Right. And she said, it's not even a matter of me being a good painter. It's not about me making a living as a painting. This is literally just me saying, I've had these talents. I want to grow my talents, which is a righteous desire, right? It is a righteous desire to want to grow your God-given talents. And so after we were doing this book, I actually sat down with my husband and I said, you know, when I used to run a business, everyone had a professional development budget. And that's a really great idea to say we as an organization choose to literally invest resources in growth, right? And I said, I would like a professional development budget in this household, <laughs> right? <laughs> like whether a professional development budget is actually money or is a Thursday night or is whatever it is, like to say that. I need to grow and your organization, your business pays for your professional development, right? Like we also need to invest in, in my growth. And I think that that is, again, it's so hard to fight off the feelings of selfishness, right? To be like, so for example, I talk about, um, I invest in my kids playing soccer, not because I think there's a return on investment, right? Like, like mm -hmm. my kid is never going to go pro. Right. But it's good for her soul to, to move her body, to invest in teamwork, to engage in learning new skills. Right. So I'm like, where did we lose this model that it's good to invest in adult souls as well? Right. Yeah. Like, I don't begrudge my child that I'm investing her soul. <laughs> Why would I think that my family would begrudge investing in my soul? Like, every yeah. member in the family needs their soul invested in. I love right. that. Like you don't expect her to make back the money that you spent on soccer. No, <laughs> for right? professional there's, career. There's no return on yes. investment though, right? financial. Yes. Right. I appreciate that because I, I think that is that's such an easy mentality for for men and women like outside of outside of the needs of the family. Why? Why does this matter if it's not going to bring income? And I, like it, we, we just it's so easy to lose sight of this fact yeah. that and there the are things that matter have to mean money, right? The investing. Yeah, it does outside of finances. Yeah. Right. But like yeah. we all we as a family need to commit to investing in every family member's soul growth. Yeah. Right. I, I, so what does that look like? Yeah. And I want to talk about that. Every member of the family doing it. I want to make sure that it's the implication is not that women need to drive this conversation forward and just be the sole like fighters for their own, you know, identity. And the, and I want to be clear about my experience in Mormonism. It, it has never been, even from the earliest ages growing up that like, it's never taught me to be domineering. It's never taught me that you're better than, uh, than women, but I feel like we have this pool that we go to over right just a couple blocks away in the summer. It has this lazy river. That's sort of its main feature. It's just re this really subtle current. And if you just aren't doing anything, then it's just pulling you along in a single direction. And I feel like that's m m sort of my experience of this sort of like uh, inequality in between lazy between river of inequality. It's I the like lazy it. river of inequality. Yeah, I like that. No, it's um, not intentional. It's not. No, no, no. Um, right? Yeah, Nothing. totally. And like I definitely feel like my experience 
um, you know, going to grad school, whatever there, I think, and I am so sorry about this, Aubrey. I really feel this. I feel like it was sort of just an unwritten assumption on my part that wherever I was going was sort of where the family needed to go. Um, And I think I was just being pulled along by that, by that lazy river of inequality. And so I I do want to ask you two. Can I just add before you don't forget your question, but I I just want to add that I, I'm in the river too. Like it, it, that was very easy because it was also, that was also my standard. There was zero (laughs) contempt because I was like, this is how we do it. And I felt nothing about it, but our, I think we could say together, our experience has been that our relationship is so much deeper and more rich when I chose to show up with a real self. And there was, it wasn't, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No, we love it. Don't be sorry. This matters. This is real. It does. Like, yeah, I, 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 yeah, this is an enthusiastic endorsement for the book because these are (laughs) lessons that we've learned like very slowly over the 16 years that we've been married, our relation, we feel like such better friends now. And I think a lot of it was that I was in that river and I was withholding actual thoughts. I was withholding opinions and, and, and my own talents. And I think Tim was, would have been completely open. He has always been completely open and receptive and encouraging, but I, I suppressed that in myself in an effort to give to the family. And what I couldn't see is that there, there's so much more to be had for everyone. When you show up as a whole self, like our, our whole family can celebrate that. And, and we feel like, I feel like there is more connection in every single relationship in the family. When, when I am showing up as a, not as a martyr and, and that was just, that was, that was where the lazy river took me self-sacrifice and never saying what I want because that felt selfish. And, and it just took practice, like learning that call it what you will, like, this is better for our family. But yeah. And I, I I would just add that some of the, I don't know what the right word is here. Some of the regret that I have is that I, I didn't start that conversation of change. Not, not that I didn't start it, but I wasn't involved in the beginning of it. Like I, I wish I had been more cognizant of it and maybe more encouraging in partnership um, to, to move there. I, I remember very clearly, the sort, I mean, the it wasn't in one moment, but, you know, the moment years ago when Aubrey sort of decided, like, I, like, I need to de- develop my own identity, my own self. And that was that was like a very conscious change. And I have been amazed to watch her over the years as she has actually like done that work and she's brought me into it. And I, I hope that the case is that I've been glad to, glad to go along. Um, but I do wish, sorry, sorry. I just, I just wish that I had been more aware of it from the beginning, you know, and not just let, and, and so okay, we've been swimming in this for 500 years or more. Maybe guess this quote was like 300 AD, right? Like we've been swimming in this for a very long time. So the lazy river is a great analogy, but but because it's just it's everything around us, right? You don't know you're in it. Yeah. Like we need the practices in the were so illuminating. Like I really believe there there is not a marriage that wouldn't benefit because it's there's such specific questions that and there are so many that there's no way there's there's not a question that you haven't considered and it, it's just it's what we needed back then like it would have been so illuminating we had just never thought to ask the question because there wasn't a problem like we couldn't see a problem right. and and it, it was just so thought provoking to walk through the the tiniest intricacies of our relationship and and like really explore like what are we doing without even thinking about it yeah. And I love this analogy of the lazy river because, and MacArthur did, she articulated this well. We've been swimming in this kind of fallen model of marriage and partnership for many, many centuries. Yeah. But I also love it because a river has momentum, right? And so we can see it as a lazy river, but we can also see it. I live next to the James River and I go down there when I need to see movement and progress and I see it flow really. And, and I feel like maybe the lazy river is picking up steam, right. And we're coming to the rapids and we're, and you know, you think of the restoration as this ongoing movement of, and progress. And so I, I um, so appreciate your being vulnerable that like, you know, you wish you would have discovered this earlier, but you are discovering it. And we're all progressing on this river. We have eternity. Think, yes, that's right. And MacArthur was a river guide, you know, and like in the, in the rapids and the, the excitement and we're, we're coming to this, to this watershed moment. And they, you know, this is, it feels yeah. like a watershed moment where um, having a, a concept of heavenly parents, a full, two fully developed beings that love and support and, and invest and grow and celebrate and joyful and collaborate 
you know, that's what we're working towards. And that's why for, you know, I'm giving. That is the definition of strong families. If we want to care about strong families, right. We talk about this all the time, like a threat to the family is not having two fully developed, invested, growing human beings, right? That is a threat to the family. Wow. And that's why I'm giving this to all couples that get married. Anytime I get a wedding invitation, this goes up because, you know, I I hope that we, that we all um, encounter this beautiful theology sometime. Um, Some of us will encounter it later. Um, Some of it hopefully we'll encounter it earlier, but um, it is a beautiful river that we're on together. Yeah. And my, my comment where it was going to come around to a question was like, if you are sort of recognizing this as a man, you know, if you are recognizing this a little bit in yourself and you want to start to do something about it, like, what do you do? But then it, the, the question, the answer occurred to me, which is, that's why you wrote this book. You should, you should buy the book and read it and do the exercises, right? Like that's the, that's the whole point. Right. But we want to be clear to this book is by no means like a, a slam on Like I fully believe deeply that the LDS faith tradition, it, um, honors and cultivates good men, men who love their wives, you know, who, who invest their time and energy in their families, who show up for household, like, like, like we, we do that well, we can do it better. Um, but MacArthur actually has a great, if we have time, MacArthur has a great yeah. story of making sure that this book isn't saying like men aren't doing their part, pick it up. And um, this is just saying we both can do better to emulate partnership. But MacArthur, can you share that for, this was another principle about we share spiritual stewardship of our family. Yeah. So, um, I think this is one of the most vital principles. I mean, there's 12, so everyone gets to pick a favorite. But um, this is the one to me that's really important because to me, we understand that these family units are eternal and that they need to grow into the next life. And so trying to figure out what that growth looks like takes intentionality, right? And so a couple of stories. One, a friend of mine and her husband were trying to decide whether or not to buy this house. And she prayed about it and got definitively no. And he prayed about it and got, I think so. And so she said to me, because he had the priesthood, because he is the head of the house, right? I just deferred to him and we went ahead and bought the house. And then she realized that because she wasn't showing up as a full partner, she has as much right to revelation to their family as what he does. And she was shortchanging their family and not showing up right? Exactly what you've been describing, Aubrey, right? When men and women both show up as their full selves, it benefits everyone, you know, husband and wife relationship and children. And so she came to this understanding that like she had shortchanged her family. And then fast forward 15 years, they're in the process of buying another house. Again, they're getting different revelation. And this time, both of them said, wait a second, (laughs) we've learned about this. Like, let's figure, let's, let's pause and figure out what's going on here. Right. And it gave them a new framework and a new understanding to have both people trust that their partnership was the best thing for making decisions for their family. And I think part of this is really important, no matter what structure you find yourself in. So I'm in a mixed faith marriage and, um, my husband is an extremely um, spiritual person and really believes in spending dedicated time and getting in touch with the universe every day. He has developed this very rich and robust spiritual practice to cultivate what he thinks is important. Well, I obviously come from a very organized, not just organized religion. I come from a very organized religion, <laughs> right? In fact, my husband is a businessman and he says the best thing the church has is your standard operating procedures. Like he's in love with the handbook, which cracks me up. Right? <laughs> like, like he literally is like, can I see that? Can, what, this is amazing, right? Wow. So we have to sit down and talk about like, what are the spiritual things we want to teach our children? Because he doesn't come with a model of teaching children about this. I come with a very robust model, not just from the church structure, but also from my family structure. So to sit down and say, what are we going to teach our children? The spiritual stewardship that we have, how are we going to bring this together? And frankly, one of the one of the things I'm not going to carry with me is I twitch when I hear any analogy about us versus them in our faith. Us versus the world makes me like head explode, right? Because I lived in India for eight years with 1.4 billion people. The numbers of church in India. Okay, so just for instance, Delhi is a city of 13 million people. So almost the same number of, and that's the official record, which means there's got to be some strays in there, right? So that's almost the entire population of our church. 
And the numbers of church in Delhi are less than 2000. Wow. Right. And so like, when you talk about us versus them, you're literally talking about our heavenly parents, other children, right? You're talking about my husband. <laughs> you're talking about half my family. Right. And so like this us versus them is not something I want to be part of our spiritual cultivation. So my husband, and I have to sit down and say, what do you want to carry from your side? What do you want to carry from your side? And what do we feel like we're honoring? So my youngest daughter will clearly say she's a member of our church, right? Like this is something that she holds as part of her identity. But I want to be clear that as she's carrying that identity for, forward, that she's carrying the most light field parts of that identity. Because the us versus them, I want to leave behind, right? But I think this is also true no matter, even if you're not in a mixed faith marriage, right? No matter what your relationship is, each of you brings something to the table that you feel really strongly about. Either I want this to be part of, or I don't want this to be part of. And that takes, like, it never, until this book, and it never occurred to my mind. Like, I knew my husband and I were kind of trying to figure this out. Um, but I, we'd been figuring it out independently because we thought we had independent faith traditions. And instead, you have to figure this out together, right? Like, what works for you? What works for me? So now my child comes home for primary. My husband says, what did you learn today? Right? And she relates what she learned today and how excited she was for X, Y, Z. And then we sometimes do some sorting out, right? And I think that understanding for me that just because I was LDS, that I didn't get to lay sole claim to this, <laughs> mm -hmm. that I actually had to work in partnership because partnership is the goal, right? Yeah. And so, which doesn't mean you don't get, sometimes get to have different stewardships. I single-handedly choose all paint colors in our house. Every single one, except my I husband, believe you. right? I, I'm in charge of color in our house. And he, and we discussed about it. He's like, I, I give that to you. Like you're better at this than I am. And yada, yada, yada. Right. There are other things I defer to him. Right. And so like, I think it's okay to say that we're each going to have different things that we unilaterally decide, but it's because we decided you're better at this. You're better at this. I choose this. You choose this. And so it's a very different model than just saying a woman's in charge of this. A man's in charge of this. Like, right. no, 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 no. Like we have we have different strengths and different talents and, and we're going to do that according to us instead of according to things yeah. that have been handed to us. And, and I feel like that what, what's coming up for me immediately is like, what, I mean, that's, that's so much a part of why it matters to bring your whole self because you have gifts, like you have access to a different kind of connection than your spouse is going to have. And, and so I get, I, I really think you're right. Like you're short changing yourself and your family by not giving, not, not, not cultivating more access and more development of those specific gifts that are uniquely yours, whether it's, you know, no matter your faith tradition, I think just your, your personality comes with, with, with gifts of connection to with God and, and with each other. And, and it may, it makes so much sense that like, that's, a, that's such a benefit to have two people instead of one who, who has access to that, to, to God's voice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bethany, do you have anything and, to add? Just going back to Tim's earlier question, like how beautiful as children of heavenly parents, we can also think of that. Like it's a gift to have two, right? It's a gift yeah. to have both, right? Yeah. And to yeah. recognize both of their hands and intervention and um, involvement in our lives. Like, and it's not a competition, right? It's it's again, it's an it's an abundance, not a scarcity, right? Right. If you think yes. of competition, that's scarcity. Abundance yeah. means we have this richness. Yeah, right. I love that's it. beautiful. Well, thank you both so much. This is, uh, we absolutely love the book. We love the, all of the work that, that you're doing. And this is, this is just so important. And maybe one of the most like practical things that we've ever brought on this podcast. It's just like, there's so much to, there's so much to just grab a hold of and, and do with this. So thank you again. It's absolutely, yeah. it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, Can I share so just much. one last quote from um, yes, please, Elder Bethany. Haven and his wife, um, yeah. Marie? Um, where they're talking about like divine marriage or temple marriage um, does not magically bring equality to partnership. Mm. Those covenants commit us to a developmental process of learning and growing together by practice. Equal partnerships are not made in heaven. They are made on earth. One choice at a time, one conversation at a time, one threshold crossing at a time. And so that's what we, we do hope that this guide is um, is practical and that it, it offers couples practices to do um, you know, one day, one week, one month, one, one year, one lifetime, um, to practice becoming like our heavenly parents and finding the, all the joy and wonder and awe and fulfillment that that Growth. makes possible. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah. You two are just awesome.
Okay, thank you so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoyed that episode with Bethany Brady Spaulding and MacArthur Krishna. Again, you can find their new book, In the Image of Our Heavenly Parents, at dstreetpress.com. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.